take that long intellectual history of Marxism. Now filter it through various applications by, uh, by Marxist scholars. It came later. You'll remember some of those guys with funny German names and a couple of Frenchies too. Now, now add um, a history that has some, uh, some tough times in it, especially race issues. And now, now send your society and plunge it into the 60s and bring it through the sexual revolution and then inject postmodern ideas in all the disciplines that they study in the, in the academy, postmodern ideas. And meantime, uh, meantime, that culture moves and drifts further from its roots the roots that we all would have understood and assumed at one point, historic foundations, which were largely um, part of, some people call it the classical liberal Western tradition, but it was mentored and shaped by, by the church, big C, by, by Christian understanding of things. And then on top of all that, just in the last you know, uh, 20 years, comes this growing intersectional idea we talked about last week. Now that's what you put all... That's the recipe for getting us what we have, the version of this critical theory that now is in books and seminars and on TV and, you know, the, the journalists and the opinion people and, <clears throat> and a lot of um, in, in education across the board in certain places. This is what is popular. So to show you this in their own words... Um, using the work of some other people who did a, who who do really good reviews of these things because I do not I I, I am going to have a hard time making myself read through all these kind of books it's just painful you know it's pain. I feel brain cells just dying you know so but I but I will look I I will try to understand through you can, there are a lot of reviews that interviews. You can also see a lot of the quotations. There's a lot of sections and selections online from which you can get a lot of quotes. So this very prominent popular book was, has been used that you see here entitled Is Everybody Really Equal? Is Everybody Really Equal? The name of a book. Subtitle, An Introduction to Key Concepts in Critical Social Justice Education. It's a bit of a mouthful. An introduction. That's, that's what this, they're saying this is. An introduction. To the key concepts in critical social justice education. Now, this book was given awards, you see there, by the American Educational Studies Association Critics' Choice Award, 2012, and the Society of Professors of Education Book Award, 2018. It is co-written by these two <clears throat> um, female professors who are white. Is one of the trends we will see you see over and over is is a lot of the architects of all these ideas <clears throat> are do not fit most a lot of these categories that they write about. Um, other than being female, these professors fit all the other, all the wrong categories. Of course, you know they're they're not minorities. They they're people of, of privilege and pretty wealth and high education and so on. And they're professors of education, which also, by the way, is a clue. Um, notice that uh, this got awards from these uh, from these uh, uh, education societies. And that these two women teach are professors of education. Now, if that's not a, if that's not a bit of a warning signal, that those and those who are teaching the, the the future teachers are are hammering this stuff into them, you know, so that now they they start to write curriculum and teach 
all the young kids. And what are they going to? What will what will they give them? How will they teach them to see the world? And and so, um, in the the first one is Robin D'Angelo. The other one has got his odd name, Oslim Sensoy. So D'Angelo's website. She says my area of research is in whiteness studies and critical discourse analysis. I bet nobody here majored in whiteness studies. But yeah, because it didn't exist. But that's her area of research. She wrote another book we'll mention in a little bit that's, that has sold more copies at the popular level called White Fragility. See it right there. Um, she's, in fact, she supposedly coined that term that people use. The other writer on, of this text we're going to examine uh, teaches in the Department of Gender, Sexuality, and Women's Studies at this Simon uh, Fraser University that's in Vancouver. It's a Canadian school. And she says that her research interests include social justice education, multicultural education, critical pedagogy, you see critical is a key adjective there, cultural studies, and feminist post-colonial theory. We'll talk, I don't know if we mentioned the, the idea of post-colonial studies, but that's something we'll get to down the road too. The idea that, um, that you, have to now, you have to now recast all of history and critique this post all of this is post-colonial. All this is those powerful Europeans, you know. That's why you got to tear Columbus down, got to tear them all down, you know. All the colonizers. So that's one thing she does. So I want to just look at some of these quotes and read through them with you, so that you can see that all of the things that we've been saying the last few weeks were not my interpretation. They say these things, and again, this is a very popular text has been widely used to introduce people to these concepts thought to be important for our time so that they can be educated on these matters. So, first they explain what critical theory is. So look at in their own words at the first page there what they say, and this will sound familiar if you've been here a few weeks. Our analysis of social justice is based on a school of thought known as critical theory. Critical theory refers to a body of scholarship that examines how society works. It is a tradition that emerged in the early part of the 20th century from a group of scholars at the Institute for Social Research at Frankfurt, Germany. Remember those guys, the Frankfurt guys. It's funny, it doesn't mention Marx at all in that one. Uh, efforts among scholars to understand how society works weren't limited to the Frankfurt School. French philosophers, notably Jacques Derrida, Michel Foucault, remember I mentioned those guys? I'll list some others. This work merges in the North American context of the 1960s with anti-war, feminist, gay rights, black power, indigenous peoples, the Chicano movement, disability rights, and other movements for social justice. So they're putting all this together for you. I mean, they're saying to the reader, this is where all this comes from. This is our, this is our intellectual background. So they're saying it. So the next page then shows you how they begin to apply this. And here's where they're going to talk about the ideas of the systems and the intersectional approach and all this. So they say, a critical approach to social justice refers to specific theoretical perspectives that recognize that society is stratified, i.e. divided and unequal, in significant and far-reaching ways along social group lines that include race, class, gender, sexuality, and ability. Critical social justice recognizes inequality as deeply embedded in the fabric of society, i.e. it is structural, and actively seeks to change this. The definition we apply is rooted in a critical theoretical approach. 
And then they come to intersectionality. Intersectionality is the idea that identity cannot be fully understood via a single lens, <clears throat> such as gender or race or class alone, but what legal scholar Kimberly Crenshaw called a single-axis framework. You can't just be single about it. You can't just look at one area where you're oppressed. You're oppressed maybe in six areas. All of them intersect. Remember we talked about that in this Crenshaw? They say for every social group, there is an opposite group. The primary groups that we name here are race, class, gender, sexuality, ability, status, exceptionality, religion, and nationality. All major, major social group categories like gender are organized into binary either-or identities, so e.g. men, women. Now that at first might get them in trouble with some of their own people by saying a thing like that, binary, men, women. Uh, these identities depend upon their dynamic relationship with one another, wherein they each identify... Um, each identity is defined by its opposite. Not only are these groups constructed as opposites, they are also ranked into a hierarchy. So there they're just admitting it. There's a hierarchy. Now look at their chart. They provide this chart in their book. This is copied straight from their book. And that chart you see at the bottom of that page, it's a little bit darkened, but you can hopefully read it still, shows you, they call this chart, Group Identities Across Relations of Power. What you have is on the, on the left column, you have what they call the minoritized group or the target group. So these are the people being oppressed. These are the marginalized ones in that category. On the right column, you see the dominant group, the ones with the privilege. And in the middle is the, is the, wor is the kind of oppression that is exercised. So the easy one at the top, the dominant group, white. The minoritized group, peoples of color. That's the term to just refer to everybody who ain't white. And what's the oppression type? Racism, of course. The next one, you got the owning class. This one, this is a very Marxist category, right? the owning class. And on the other hand, the poor or working class, or even they put middle class. Who would have thought the middle class are an oppressed group? Wow. So everybody here feel like you're in the middle class? We're all oppressed. All right. Uh, that's classism. Then you have, uh, interesting what they do with sexism. I bet you learned when you were younger what sexism is. Is is gender, basically it's when it's when men mistreat women, right? Sexist, right? Isn't that what that is? But look how they look what they do with sexism. They call it they call it sexism when you have the dom when it's the dominant group is cis men. What does that mean? Why do they put cis in front of that? By the way, anybody know some of their code language? Cis men. What? That just means. Men who were born male and believe they're men. <laughs> okay, like this is, in other words, cis in their lingo. You got to learn new vocabulary here. In their lingo, cis is the opposite of trans. So, on the other side of that group are the minority group here, the target group, which would be. But look, look what they lump together: women. Transgender, genderqueer, whatever that is, <laughs> you know, every, just anything. So they, they lump them all. In, so it's sexist, then not just like you, you grew up thinking, oh, it's sexist if a man, if a man uh, looks down on a woman, looks down on a woman, thinks that a woman is lesser. But now it's sexist if you also will not accept a transgender person as what they claim they are, or if you have any kind of issue with any kind of, you know, um, deviant identity or practice that somebody has. You're still a, you're a sexist. By the way, um, the Supreme Court recently bought into this idea of sexism because they took a um, they took an older law that that said 
um, that you couldn't discriminate against women, and they went ahead and interpreted that to also apply to transgender. So they expanded the idea of sexism. And so you see how this catches on. <clears throat> These ideas catch on. <clears throat> so obviously you have the hetero versus... Uh, again, look what that, look who they lumped together. If the dominant group's heterosexual, you would think, okay, then the minority group's going to be um, homosexual. But it's all these others, whatever, two, you got two-spirit, huh? So then there's even a religious category. Look at that. The dominant group, Christian, and you got the minority, the marginalized groups are all the others. You have Buddhists and Jews and Muslims, Hindus, all others. And you don't want to be guilty of, of the practicing the oppression of religious oppression there. That's what they put there. Then you've got the able-bodied versus disabilities. You've got citizens versus immigrants. And, and then they even throw in this colonialism category of oppression where the dominant group is the white settlers and the minority group is the, is the indigenous peoples. Some of these seem a little bit outdated. I mean, I mean, how many times have you gone, woken up in a day and gone through your day thinking of yourself as a white settler? I'm a settler. I mean... You're, we're a little bit removed from those who settled. We just got a born here, right? I mean, so th th this almost acts like that we're all we're all like you know took off in the land run and staked out some property that we stole from some natives. Uh, so anyhow, the chart shows you what they're getting at, right? As I had said last week about this business of intersectionality. Does it, see, so does this make sense? Does this seem to coordinate with what we already said before? They're, they're teaching it in their book. They're persuading people. This is how this works. But see, they make some other claims too. So this book has to say it has a lot to say, and here it gets into some philosophy now, about knowledge itself. In the next page, we see quotes where they say that knowledge is not even objective. Knowledge, they say, is constructed socially by people in power. Hmm. So, look how they put it, quote, One of the key contributions of critical theorists concerns the production of knowledge. An approach based on critical theory calls into question the idea that objectivity is desirable or even possible. That's funny how they say that. The, uh, call into question whether objectivity is even desirable. I don't even want objective, an objective perspective or objective truth. No, not, it's not desirable. Not desirable? So it's not calls into question whether it's even possible or whether it's even desirable. The term used to describe this way of thinking about knowledge is that knowledge is socially constructed. When we refer to knowledge as socially constructed, we mean that knowledge is reflective of the values and interests of those who produce it. Sounds like a conspiracy. And so this view, they say, challenges the belief that knowledge is simply the result of rational, objective, and value-neutral process, one that is removed from any political agenda. The notion of value-free or objective knowledge was central to rationalizing the colonization of other lands and peoples that began in the 15th century. So that seems, that's, that's, a, that's an odd argument. This was used by people 500 years ago who did a bad thing, therefore this way of thinking is bad even by itself that's that's a, that's a strange just an invalid way to make that argument a lot of i mean the nazis used math is math evil they had to use math to draw their plans and create their war machine and do all that maybe math is evil look what they did with it 
Very strange. Yeah, and those people who say that haven't raised kids. Exactly. You're gonna let them decide what's right and wrong? Good luck. Good luck. I don't want any of my neighbors or coworkers or anybody around me deciding for themselves what's right and wrong. You trust people to be the arbiters of what, to not let their own sinful desires get in the way? I mean, who are we kidding? But that's the postmodern element, this subjective idea. Um, it's completely bankrupt. It can't be defended. What? What's that? I said, I think that's what's wrong with the middle class now, or the, the millennials. Yeah. It's that they raised themselves. And that would be partly the fault of the parents that that uh, bought into that idea and just let them, you know, thought that, don't want to inter- interfere with them becoming who and what they are. It might damage them might traumatize them if you deny them anything tell them no tell them they're wrong about anything and and this plays right into that because it's saying if uh, look if whatever the rules are if I'm told by the government XYZ if I'm told by the scientists XYZ if I'm told by the health people if I'm told by the church this is this doesn't so in every single case if I don't like what I'm hearing I could just say well you have the power. You are constructing this knowledge based on your power. That's all that is. It's not objective. There's no such thing. That's objective. I mean, how long until? What happens someday if the Supreme Court says, "Well, there's no objective way to rule anything anyway"? So, what what does the court become then? Just uh, nine people's personal taste, personal preference. Yeah, um, if if we deconstruct the Constitution, then they could interpret it to mean whatever they like. There's already been some of that um, already. They say here that language is not a neutral transmitter of a universal of universal objective or fixed reality. Language is the way we construct reality. Some of this sounds a little sci-fi to me, almost. Or what certain. I mean, there are people, there are certain Eastern teachers that say things like this. There are certain televangelists that say things like this, or New Agers that say things like this. That you, your words have the power to construct reality. They're not saying that exactly in that way, but it sounds similar. Uh, what they mean by it is more that uh, is more whatever you whatever values we espouse, uh, truth claims we make. Well, that's we're just we're just constructing that truth. You hear people today, I know we all hear people today talking about speaking my truth. Ever hear that? Speak your truth, man. And um, obviously that, for a lot of us, every time we hear it, it rubs us the wrong way. Is that anybody else too? Anytime you hear that personal, that per, that uh, possessive kind of, it's like, your truth? My truth is something that has always struck me every time I hear it. It sounds wrong because it implies subjectivism. It implies this. It implies that uh, there is no actual truth that we both would see and recognize it for what it is. So, so then even language. So then they they bullet point their own views here. They say critical social justice perspectives, and they give they this is right from their text. These three bullet points: 
that one, there is no neutral text. All texts represent a particular perspective. Two, that all texts are embedded with ideology. The ideology embedded in most mainstream texts function to reproduce historical relations of unequal power. And three, texts that appeal to a wide audience usually do so because they reinforce dominant narratives and serve dominant interests. Now, now I'm going to we're we're going to be um, I'm laying all this on you to get a good look at it, but I'm going to be going through um, and uh, uh, won't get to it tonight, but but offering the the fair and biblical biblical response and critique of all these like what what are the issues what are the problems what are my why wouldn't I embrace this well I got plenty plenty of reasons there are plenty of things wrong with with these ideas plenty of things I'm not getting to that just yet because I'm just laying it out for you but we will get to it but I will give you a hint ask yourself this when it comes to this kind of stuff because because this is not new to me this perspective here a lot of that other stuff is new this here about constructed constructed knowledge and that's not new to me I knew I, I encountered that long years and years ago so I knew about because this is postmodernism and I encountered this years ago in things I read and years ago I saw what was wrong with it and all you need to do is ask yourself um, whether or not those three bullet points how what happens when the writers of this text and, and a few of the other texts that are like it, what happens when, if we apply these truths universally, including their own text? So the first one, there is no neutral text. So the text we're reading from here that those two women wrote is not a neutral text. All texts represent a particular perspective. So their text clearly simply represents their perspective, doesn't it? They just said so. The second one, all texts are embedded with ideology. Looks like their book's embedded with ideology. The ideology embedded in most mainstream texts, the texts that I'm quoting from weren't read by like six people. They're mainstream. They've sold, they've got awards and sold millions. They've been to Amazon number one. So maybe their texts uh, function to reproduce historical relations of unequal power. They're mainstream. Third, they say texts that appeal to a wide audience. I just said that their texts have appealed to a wide audience, didn't I? Go look it up. Look at look up look up these one the, the the sales of this book and the other one White Fragility and a few other they sold they sold millions upon millions of copies texts that appeal to a wide audience usually do so because they reinforce dominant narratives and serve dominant interests so does their book then just serve it doesn't take lo, a little a little bit of simple logic turns this in on itself the what if these all if these all encompassing statements are true they are true of the text saying it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. It's self-referential. So that's just a clue to one of the big problems with all of this. If all knowledge is merely constructed, then so is all the knowledge they're conveying to me in this book. They constructed it. Why should I think it's true? So they say knowledge and understanding, and this is another element of the – this is called, this is called um, sort of a, a perspectival approach. It all, it's all about where you stand. Your perspective, your standpoint. Knowledge and understanding are dependent on one's social position. They say, positionality asserts that knowledge is dependent upon a complex web of cultural values, beliefs, experiences, and social positions. Who we are as knowers is intimately connected to our group socialization, including gender, race, class, sexuality. 
so that what you know is connected to who you are and where you stand. Now, what that ends up meaning is, they will they explain it here. It is difficult for dominant group members to see oppression or to believe accounts of it happening to others. In addition to the structural barriers, there are psychological and social investments in not seeing oppression. These investments cause us to resist pressures to acknowledge oppression. Where we are dominant, we generally don't like to have our privilege pointed out. Now, a lot of this has some to do a lot of this corresponds with that other book I mentioned that one of these writers wrote that's been wildly popular called White Fragility, because that's what this is getting at, partly. Look at that next quote. It says, Our inability to think with complexity about racism, as well as our investment in it, makes whites the least qualified to assess its manifestations. Remember, she's white. Very few whites believe that structural racism is real or have the humility to engage with peoples of color about it in an open and thoughtful way. You will find as you read through these that there, that there's, there, is a, there is a good deal of uh, sort of, I don't know what the right term for it is, there's a whole lot of sort of um, self-congratulatory, you know, um, it's almost like, I mean, what's she implying? Very very few whites are able to have the humility. Of course, I'm one of them who obviously does have the humility. So many of you simply don't. That's why I'm here, to help you. There, there's this, for some, somehow some of these writers have, have just given themselves the authority to talk about all these things as if they know stuff. And people pay women like this huge sums of money to come to their corporation or their business or the, or the city, like the city of Seattle recently, had all city employees go through this training here. And they'll pay women like this to come in. And so these women think that they're great experts. They walk in like they're, you know, some kind of super scholars saying all this nonsense. And, but thinking that they see it, they get it. Because after all, she is one of those few whites with the true humility. And she's going to try to get you to. And actually, on that note, you should look at that very last page. You should jump to that last page for a second to just to get a good dose. Her book called White Fragility is about this, and it's really an interesting game she plays. She defines the concept of white fragility like this, quote, a state in which even a minimum amount of racial stress becomes intolerable, triggering a range of defensive moves. White fragility produces feelings. Listen, listen to all, all the things that show that you, you, you have white fragility. Feelings of being singled out or attacked or silenced or judged. Behavior such as physically leaving or emotionally withdrawing or denying it or seeking absolution. Or claims that, quote, I already know this, or you are generalizing, or I disagree. <laughs> so, look at this. Whites can also display their own white fragility by insisting on certain rules of engagement, like feedback should be given calmly, or you need to allow me to explain myself, or assume good intentions, or be respectful. 
Uh, she says that the true function of all those things is to obscure racism, to protect white dominance, to regain white equilibrium. And if anyone says, well, I'm colorblind, she assures them that no one can actually be colorblind in a racist society. So the claim that you're colorblind is not a truth, it is a false belief. Uh, th this book is particularly um, just off-putting because what she essentially does is she wants to defend this whole set of beliefs, this critical race theory. But the way she does it, instead of making a good case for it, she simply says that, well, you, any of you, any of you out there who, ha who questions me on my belief on this, might disagree with me, dare to tell me I'm wrong, any of that, anything short of your absolute total agreement with me just proves that you have white fragility. See how that works? This is a, this is a game you can't win. It's a, it's a trick. Some people, uh, some people call it a Kafka trap. It's an old reference to the, the old writer Kafka from one of his books where there's a man accused of something and it's uh, every, everything he says to try to say he's innocent is just used as the evidence that he is, must be guilty. It's, uh, it's, it's non-falsifiable. There's no way you can show that you're not guilty of it because everything you would do to show that, she just says in advance, is evidence that you are. It's like certain forms of Freudian psychoanalysis. It's just like an old joke where, you know, every Freud says, well, you, you have these... Um, the problem is you have a, uh, you have a subconscious uh, desire for X, Y, Z, whatever, and they, everything the guy says to show, no, I really don't, the Freudian just says... That's exactly what a guy would say who has that who has that problem. So, you know, it's like uh, there's no way out of this. They close, they box you in. It's a, it's just a, it's a cheap trick, um, and it's a bad argument. And then she then she acts like um, she's so surprised. Oh, can you? I, she goes into these rooms full of people. Essentially, tells them all right from the beginning, you're all a bunch of racists, and you can't, and you're all too weak and fragile to handle me telling you that. And then. Any bit, and then she then she acts really off-put that any of them uh, react negatively to her. You know, well, gee, why would they? Can't imagine why. Can't imagine why, since not knowing them, you just told them that. You just accused them of of being great sinners in that way, specifically just by virtue of the color of their skin or whatever it is. So, so you see how this works. Um, so, so you see, truth is not even. Uh, um, an objective thing. It's just constructed. Knowledge is just what powerful people create and invent. And your ability to understand things is all about your position and your how you, your intersectional position. So this is why sometimes people will say, um, "Have you ever heard a debate? For example, a discussion about something like abortion, and someone will someone may have a pretty good point to make, but but he's a man, and someone will say, "Well, you can't speak on this." Because you're not a woman, and that's essentially what this is saying. Uh, you, you, you would you would need different chromosomes to be able to logically form an argument about this. Uh, so, you know, it's a good thing that this hasn't been held to be true when uh, when powerful people in in British Parliament who happen to be white were making the case to abolish the slave trade. Someone might have said to them, "You can't come in here and talk about the slave trade at all. I mean, you're not you're you're white, so therefore you're not a, your your positionality means you don't know anything about it. And then we would have never they would have never been able to abolish it. 
because you couldn't have even listened to those guys. Well, this is just absurd is what it is, completely absurd. And, 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 and again, if, if that's true, why am I listening to a, to a wealthy, straight, white woman tell me about all these things? Her position, she kind of flunks the positionality test to know anything about it. Isn't that true? Based on her own... Anyway, I get ahead of myself. So, so part of the idea here is that there is this dominance of ideas. And this is where this gets really insidious because what you do is you say, okay, there are, there are power structures that oppress people. And then you take any traditional notion at all and say, that's part of it, that's part of it, that's part of it. So they say hegemony, remember that? Ideology and power. Hegemony refers to the control of ideology and of society. The dominant group maintains power by imposing their ideology on everyone. Power in the context of understanding social justice refers to the ideological, technical, and discursive elements by which those in authority impose their ideas and interests on everyone. From a critical social justice perspective, privilege is defined as systemically conferred dominance and the institutional process by which the beliefs and values of the dominant group are, quote, made normal and universal. Because dominant groups occupy the positions of power, their members receive social and institutional advantages. Thus, one automatically receives privilege by being a member of a dominant group, as in cis men, whites, heterosexuals, the able-bodied Christians, and the upper classes. Oppression, you see, is ideological. Ideology, as the dominant ideas of a society, plays a powerful role in the perpetuation of oppression. Ideology is disseminated throughout all the institutions of society and rationalizes social inequality. Oppression is embedded within individual consciousness through socialization and rationalized as normal. See what they're saying here? And where this is going, you might be going, okay, well, what, what's the problem yet? Where this is going is, guess what some of the things are that were, quote, made normal or normalized? Or in, how, about, how about just the idea of the family? How about just the idea of marriage? You know? How about basic Christian morality? about the idea of just Christianity as a whole, is that the, the church is a good force in society, you know? How about the idea of work, work hard, hard work? You're, we're going to see later, there's more that uh, we won't get to tonight. You'll see later that some people are going to say, with a straight face, this whole business about working hard, that's just a white, that's just a, that's, see, anything, everything gets challenged, everything, everything. Well, you should always be honest. Maybe that's even something. I mean, they just, anything could be, oh, that's just a part of the dominant, uh, the dominant ideology. So a couple of specifics. So they're, inter- they're, they're concerned about patriarchy. Patriarchy, they say, is the belief in the inherent superiority of men and the creation of institutions based on that belief. Now look at some examples. Examples of patriarchal ideology worldwide are a male god, the father as the head of the household. Males as authority in social realms, law, government, religion, women as inherently inferior, or the property of men. How do you like how they just lump all that together? Like, that's just all one thing. So, you know, you know, thinking women are property, calling God Father. Same thing. Same thing. All patriarchy. That's, that's another trick. Taking things. You know, but anyone can play that trick, right? Anyone can play that trick. I could, I could do that to anybody. I could say, you know... Um, I, I don't. I don't like that you. Um, um, I don't know. I, I don't like that you uh, um, support 
Senator so-and-so as a candidate. Um, and I could just say, you know, there's so, so many people, so many crazy people there. You got people that support the Senator so-and-so. You got child molesters, you know. See, I just put them together like there's some kind of connection. It's like, that's, that's just a nasty rhetorical kind of thing to do. And then you have racism, of course. And they have a lot to say about that. Critical scholars define racism not like you grew up defining it. They define it like this, as a systemic relationship of unequal power between white people and people of color. By the way, this is true in many parts of the world. There are many, I've been to places in the world where the system is set up like that. Um, but we will um, we'll come back around to it.